with our specialization on the last generation, we are particularly dedicated to artist biographies and the individual image statement linked to them and our pictures. I see that we all see that from our, of our team, heroes of the artist's feelings and messages, uh, but also of the consequences of intolerance and inhumanity. And that's a very important topic, especially for our, our common future, especially for us as uh, a young generation who wants to learn from that, from the past. And yeah, also the works are not just objects from the past, they also carry a message from which we can preserve those uh, yeah, imperishable human values and make them available for our shared future. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Marie Gephardt with the Museum Art of the Lost Generation in Salzburg, Austria giving her thoughts on the important work being done at this museum dedicated to artists who, under the rule of National Socialists during the Second World War, were labeled degenerate and nearly eradicated from art history. Ms. Gephardt and I had the opportunity to speak on two occasions, and we discuss the origins of this museum that holds Dr. Heinz Boma's private collection of approximately 600 works, two exhibitions that were up until mid-2022, using brush and paint against the time, and about women, female destinies in the Boma collection, as well as two exhibitions currently on display, Meet Me in Paris, it's on view until January 2023, and until April 2023, a selection of newly acquired work entitled Forbidden Beauty. Marie Gephardt, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Stephanie, for the invitation. <laughs> Would you tell a bit about Professor Bama and how he came to create this unique collection? Yes, of course. The Museum Art of the Lost Generation is a private art museum in Salzburg in Austria, uh, which opened in 2017. And its creation and uh, its founding is thanks to the collector, Professor Böhmer. And over the many years, he has specialized his collection, his private art collection, in the art of the so-called lost generation. And uh, it is about artists, who were born around uh, the turn of the 20th century and who were the second generation of the modern artists. And it is therefore about the younger generation of artists who during the 1920s and 30s studied under the famous artists of their time. And these, for example, included Lovis Corinth, Max Beckmann, Paul Klee, Otto Kokoschka, for instance, you maybe know them. <laughs> And they had already began to receive a certain level of recognition at this time, but their lives and careers changed when the social nationalists seized power in 1933. And along with their teachers, they lost their jobs, their recognition and their, their work. And all modern art forms uh, were banned and suppressed. There was no creative or personal liberty anymore and our job and goal of the museum out of the lost generation is to find and research the artists who, during this time, were persecuted, whose artworks were branded as degenerate, and who were banned from working and painting. 
many of whom had to flee into exile to USA, for example, to London, to Jerusalem or other destinations, or even lost their lives when they were deported to concentration camps. And we work to um, research the biographies and works of these artists. We want to find present and explain their life's works, which until now have been lost, missing and driving to ruin. The collection is also not only focused on German artists, but includes artists with many different backgrounds and nationalities, all of whom have been forgotten due to the repressive national socialist regime. Would you walk us through the museum, how the artwork is curated and a, a description of the space? Uh, yes, we are based in the um, historical city center in Salzburg. The museum is uh, about 300 square meters. When you first come to the museum, you will see our um, permanent exhibition. Currently on display, it's called Using Brush and Paint Against the Time, which highlights the various artists which have been most recently added to the collection. And the poster image, for example, is a self-portrait of the artist Heinrich Edel Emil Adametz from 1955. And Adametz studied at the School of Arts and Crafts in Hamburg and uh, later in Stuttgart as a pupil of Adolf Hetzel and Leopold von Kalkreuth until 1906. And in 1914, he married Johanna Michaelis, who came from a wealthy Jewish family After the takeover in 1933, he was banned from working because of his Jewish affiliation. And the couple then lived on the run, often changing their homes. And in 1944, arrested and taken to the Gardelegen concentration camp nearby Magdeburg. And during the evacuation of the camp, he managed to escape by jumping into a sewage ditch. And uh, his fellow inmates, unfortunately, did not survive. And uh, in 1945, once the war has ended, he came back and he returned to Berlin. And this is one of the uh, paintings we show in this new exhibition. And this is just one of the moving stories and artists shown in our current exhibition. And the different paintings, styles, modes of representation, biographies, Uh, result in a very multiplicated exhibition. So we show um, motives as portraits, self-portraits, for example, as still lives and landscapes and so on. And we also uh, show our special exhibition about female destinies in the Böhme collection. Um, the focus of this special exhibition is on the female artists in our collection. Um, and until the end of the First World War, women were denied access to universities and art colleges and in order to receive an education usually the only option was to take private lessons or uh, attend courses organized by art societies for women furthering their professional paths was also difficult for young female artists at this time which is uh, why they often organized themselves into groups through associations, for example, artists, colonies, and they exhibited collectively. After the National Socialists took power in 1933, this meant a deep cultural and personal break for, for female artists as well as their male colleagues, especially if they came from wealthy families, many of whom were 
again Jewish origin, and our exhibits include different types of works, such as, as nudes, still lives, landscapes, portraits of the artists' uh, families, friends, and so on. And for example, in this exhibition, we are showing works by the artist Anno Jacobi, who was the grandniece of Adolf Menzel, a famous painter in Germany, and Johannes Brahms, a famous uh, musician and composer. And this is what uh, makes her a well-connected woman. But uh, from 1915, she took private lessons with Lovers Corinth. She lived in Italy and in Paris with her husband, Rudolf Jacobi, whom we also have in our collection. And there, they continued their training with Andre Lott in Paris. In 1928, they opened the painting school, which was called Anno in Berlin. And she became a member of many um, artists' associations and participated in exhibitions. But uh, when the Jacobis refused to dismiss the Jewish pupils in 1933, the painting school was closed by the National Socialists. Because of their own Jewish ancestry, the Kugel had to flee to New York, where the painting school was reopened as the Anno Art School. Also, another female artist on display, Felka Platek. She was born to a Jewish family in 1989 in Warsaw, which was then part of the Russian Empire. In 1923, she moved to Berlin to begin her education when she studied at the Levin-Funke-Schule with Ludwig Meidner. Then she met her future husband, Felix Nussbaum. In 1932, she traveled with him to Rome, thanks to a scholarship to the Villa Massimo, which he received. And in 1933, they left the villa. They had to leave the villa because of a dispute with a colleague and also because of the political circumstances. And at that time, the threat was growing in Germany. So they both emigrated to Belgium in 1935 and living in Brussels as of 1937. After the German occupation in 1940, Nussbaum was taken to an internment camp, but he was lucky enough to escape and able to return to Belgium. And in 1942, the couple had to leave the home and hid in the attic of an apartment. And since our portrait is dated to 1942, which uh, we show in this exhibition, this is probably where it was painted. It likely uh, depicts their neighbor, Mrs. Etienne, who was one of their few contacts during this time. Platek and Nussbaum were uh, discovered and deported to Auschwitz, where they were murdered in the same year. And uh, in total, there are just three oil paintings known from uh, this artist. Uh, so it's a very special, special piece. And Felix Nussbaum, her husband, his work is very rare also to locate. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's also a Felix Nussbaum Museum in Germany, um, which has many works of Felix Nussbaum, but also two, the two other works of Felga Platek we know today. So we have the third one. So it's a very special highlight for people who are interested in the topic. <laughs> I had seen one book that was referenced in your catalog, Felka and Felix. But it's a great book and uh, we are selling this in our museum. 
Um, yeah, it's about the story of Felix Nussbaum and Felka Pladek. I told to you, it's uh, very emotional and uh, yes. Also, Hannah Becker von Rath, she is in the collection. Would you describe a bit about her? Uh, we also have uh, many works of uh, by Hannah Becker von Rath, an artist from Frankfurt. She was born in Frankfurt and um, she studied with Ottilie Röderstein, also a German artist, which uh, she depicts in one of uh, in the work in our collection and um, she supported other artists during this difficult time and gave them refugee in her so-called blue house um, in Hofheim. It's also in Germany and organized exhibitions and also knew many artists and um, yes, was uh, not only an artist, uh, she was also a well-connected woman. One of the pieces that struck me in uh, the catalog of the exhibition, We Haven't Seen Each Other for So Long, is the sculpture by Adelie Volman. It struck me that you have very few sculptures uh, in the collection. What I read is you normally only have paintings. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, our focus and main interest is in all paintings. But however, we collect graphics as well, but we exclusively as a supplement to the paintings in the collection. And for instance, we have also a woodcut, but occasionally we also acquire sculptures if the biography fits into the collection. Yeah, but it's not our main focus. It's really the oil paintings. <laughs> and the collection is continuously being expanded through uh, new acquisitions and over the time, the number of offers we receive has increased also for sculptures. I was curious about the provenance process and, and the criteria that is used for researching. Uh, the provenance, of course, is very important for us. And uh, provenance research must, of course, be approached differently for each work and artist. So precise research about the artist's education and work as well as the seller's information about the origin of the artwork usually give us a clear overview of the provenance. However, in some cases, the provenance is fraught with uncertainty due to the fractured lives of the artists. And when we acquire artworks through descendants, for example, or family holdings and estates, we can be sure about the provenance. But Digitization is also a great help. Uh, special searches in various databases and lost art registers really help our research. But in total, um, it's uh, very important and we do that for every artwork, of course. <laughs> that's that's our work <laughs> as a museum. Yeah. And is that one of the roles that you play at the museum doing the research? Yes, yes, absolutely. The research is um, one of our main works and it's a large part of our job and it's what defines us as a museum. And the research is done almost within the museum. Um, all biographies were researched and written as a team effort between the scientific staff and Professor Böhmer personally, and we use uh, many art historical and contemporary historical sources to investigate the biographies and histories of the artists and artworks. And specialist 
literature, survey works from the period, the internet and artist catalogs are a huge help uh, along with the information we receive from families and visitors as well. And working with the painting themselves also gives us a lot of information and helps guide our research. We start with the exact description, look for notes on the back, such as addresses or labels, newspaper clippings and inscriptions. And for example, when researching a painting by a female artist, which um, is new, we found a Frankfurt address noted on the back. And in a historical telephone book, From 1932, we found the artist listed at this address, along with her birth name, her job title, and so one thing often lead, leads to another, and we are always uh, grateful for support from visitors concerning our artists from interested parties outside of the museum. And we have therefore recently established an engagement and sponsoring program so that interested individuals and companies can support us through both personal uh, involvement and also donations we recently received as well in the last year. And which was the female artist that you uh, were just referring to that you found in the phone book? Ruth Kahn is a Frankfurt artist, female artist, and absolutely unknown. <laughs> And how did you come to find that piece and what painting is it? It's a portrait of a woman, but about the provenance. We got it from the, the seller, the information, where it is from. And uh, yes, now we can say it's uh, also a good provenance because we know the painting is from that address. I'd also read that canvases rolled up in an attic were found, and that's how you have the work of Heinrich Esser. That was many years ago. Um, Heinrich Esser is also a very unknown artist and also an artist of the last generation. And yeah, Mr. Böhme found uh, works of Esser in a, in a house on the land. It's a very special and very good artist. Three People is one of the paintings, and then Company at, at the Table. Yeah. I was just curious, for Company at Table, what do you think it means? <laughs> That's a very good question, yes. Um, we noticed that there are on the painting uh, a, a number of persons, but there's uh, one less more than persons, which are depicted on the painting. So, yes, of course, we ask ourselves which uh, which person could it be and yeah and the empty chair it just begs to ask who who is missing from that painting yeah it's and these are questions that we can't answer because these artists have been lost to us such it, it speaks to how important this collection is to revive these artists yeah yes right who's missing Yes, absolutely. You have to see the painting in the original sometime. <laughs> yes, yes, I want to. <laughs> One of the other portraits that really spoke to me was of uh, Dr. Friedrich Maas by Gerrit Heinrich Wolheim. That painting, it's about uh, what I'd read was that it was 
done posthumously and that this this gentleman Friedrich Moss had given testimony in Nuremberg about his experience and that the painter did this portrait of him as sort of an allegory, a political portrait. Yes, um, there's a newspaper in his hands, as as far as I remember, and also a cigar. And um, yeah, there are hidden symbols we can read out of the pictures, which uh, can tell us something about yeah a second uh, a second topic of the painting, which isn't uh, always seen at the first time. Yes, it's a very important uh, artwork of the collection. Are there pieces in the collection that are particularly significant to you that you especially find speak to you? That's a very difficult question. <laughs> I don't have an answer because um, of the many different styles, motifs, and especially the backgrounds presented in the collection, I find it extremely difficult uh, to choose only one. They are all so, so special and unique and in their own way. So it's impossible to compare them. But I really, really, really love our actual exhibition about the female destinies because it combines great artworks of the collection. Yeah. <laughs> and it's beautiful that the collection has as many female artists in it as it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's a good sign. Yeah. For, also for the future. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so how do you see the the museum and the collection helping to create the cultural and artistic memory going forward? Yes. Concerning the future, the museum's tasks go beyond researching and collecting artists and works from the last generation because we see ourselves um, as a place which collects, which rediscovers, preserves and of course shares history for future generations. And we attempt to come to terms with the past by focusing on the artists and their fates and by presenting a personal side to the collection. We can learn from our history and therefore begin to tackle the challenges presented by our shared future. So I would say uh, by combining art history and contemporary history, we want to bring permanently relevant topics and the basic social principles of our society back into people's consciousness and Yes, within our museum, we want to create a setting and a dialogue and where the pictures can speak out uh, for themselves. And do you see the uh, this work as playing a role in, in creating justice for these artists whose careers were cut short? Yes, I absolutely do. Yeah, that's uh, in our opinion, our possibility to um, be part of this uh, movement for the future and also to uh, give back justice and a place um, for the artists in our cultural visibility and consciousness. Are there any examples of visitors that have come into the museum and their comments that you would share? Both visitor and the feedback of the press are 
consistently positive, which has been reflected also in a steady increase of the visitor numbers. And with this exhibition, we aim to increase the visibility of female artists and artists of the lost generation. And the open dialogue with our visitors is also very important to us. And we receive many suggestions. Often our visitors have personal relationships or connections with the artists or with their families. So I love this part of my job. <laughs> Um, this year, we have also already received donations from visitors, great donations, which uh, enriched our collection. And yes, because most of the artists are unknown to our visitors previously, we can um, help them to get to know the artists in an individual way. The biographies which we have researched are available throughout the exhibit. So we can provide an individual access for everyone who wants to visit the exhibition, who comes and is interested in our topic. So I think this is a special, um, yeah, a special um, opportunity for everyone. My understanding is that there's a library that's also accessible to visitors. Yes, there's a little library um, and everyone can read books, can come and ask for special books, for special literature or, yes, talking with us about the artists and, yeah, it's a very open museum. Marie Gephardt, welcome back to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for joining me again. It's, it's great to have you. Hello, Stephanie. Thank you for the invitation. It's yeah, such a pleasure to talk with you at your podcast today again <laughs> about our new special exhibition. Yeah, so please tell us about what's, uh, what's on display now. Yes, our current special exhibition is called Meet Me in Paris. And it shows artists from our collection who were in Paris during the first half of the 20th century. Uh, because back then, Paris was the absolute art metropolis of its And artists, writers, collectors, intellectuals came from all over the world to surround themselves with the latest art for Asian cultures, uh, educational opportunities, and also inspiration among like-minded people. And uh, this period of artistic flourishing is uh, called... They call the Paris. And we are exhibiting artists from our collection who fit in this um, time and were in Paris uh, in the 1920s or also in the 1930s. Um, in a total, we are showing 31 works of art by 22 artists, which are direct, uh, with a direct connection to Paris. Um, yeah, and their paths intersected, they are crossed there and branched out again. So, um, yeah, it's a very vibrant and uh, diverse exhibition. The artists who are on display mostly came from German-speaking area, but also from Eastern Europe and from Russia as well. And the exhibition addresses various historical facets of the city and raises different uh, perspectives on this period for discussion. For example, one of the interesting topics addresses that uh, female artists 
in particular hoped to find their uh, new educational opportunities in Paris and wanted to de develop creatively beyond the social corset of the uh, German Empire. So the private academies in Paris were the yeah, antithesis of the state schools in Germany. This was one really, really important reason for them to come to Paris because also the teacher in Paris are no longer the yeah, academic painters of the older generation, but avant-garde artists of the time, such as Henri Matisse or also Rodolphe Chouillard. And women were not allowed to study at university in Germany until 1914. Of course, this depends on the city and on the university, but in general, they were not allowed at this time. And uh, if they had success to the university, they were only taught in separate classes, so-called ladies' painting classes. Another option was for female artists um, in this time to take expensive private courses. But of course, this was only available for uh, women with a certain social background. Um, in Paris, it was possible for the first time for female and male artists to study together in mixed classes. And this was a brand new thing. <laughs> also, um, the teaching content was new in Paris. The students of both genders uh, also attended live nude classes with male and female models because the aim of these classes was no longer to depict yeah, mythological or religious uh, themes in which nude painting needed a pretext. The models did not um, move into standardized poses anymore and it was uh, not longer um, interesting to study the anatomical accuracy. These things were a thing of the past. So the models moved in Paris in the new classes in dynamic postures and um, were also painted that way. And that also shows our exhibition. We have wonderful nude works Uh, by Martha Bernstein, for example, and also Rudolf Levy, um, to name a few. And yeah, their works uh, demonstrate the influence of the modern Parisian teachers at the private academies. So yeah, this is one very interesting topic. Another second theme presented uh, through the exhibition is meeting places for artists, such as the Café du Dom in Montparnasse. Originally, it was uh, just a cafe, <laughs> but um, it became an illustrious meeting place for German uh, artists and also the Eastern European artists seen in Paris. And works from this period also are from Levy, for example, who was uh, the co-founder of this um, yeah, association, and also Paul Teasing or the Hungarian Fauvist Bela Zobe. Maybe we can talk about him later. And he exhibited in the Fauvist Hall in the Autumn Saloon in 1905, which caused a sensation and was also the birth exhibition for the Fauvism. Another topic addressed by the exhibition is that after the seizure of power in 1933, German-speaking artists in particular saw Paris as a safe haven from the National Socialists. So over, uh, over the time, they hoped uh, there for a secure and unrestricted work, but in fact, it was life in exile. And life in exile consisted um, mostly of poverty, threats of expulsion, odd jobs, and the struggle to survive too. 
and to make matters worse, this is uh, the last topic of our exhibition, this illusion of security only lasted until 1940, until June, um, when the German troops occupied Paris. And Paris then turned out to be more of a trap, especially for Jewish refugees. And we also show artists um, like Arnold Fiedler or Walter Dönecke, who emigrated to Paris, having been deemed degenerate, but ended up as prisoners um, after the occupation or even were deported. Yeah, so that's a very various theme. And the exhibition follows such a variety of artists on their journey to Paris, but also uh, away from Paris if they had to flee again. Um, yeah, and it's not only according to topographical criteria, but also historically, art historically, and especially emotionally. And each works in this exhibition reflects different expectations, reactions, experiences that the artist uh, made through the tension of war and yeah, existential hardship. But also they reflect the freedom and the openness of the metropolis yeah, before the occupation. So I think this is a really important and uh, new topic as well. Samuel Granovsky, yeah. his work was created in Paris. The piece that you have, I believe, is that right? The pastel? Yes, you're right. Yes, the beautiful pastel nude work. <laughs> in the description I'd read about him, I was curious. I wasn't sure if the piece that you have was created in the technique that he used with a spatula. I wasn't sure if you could elaborate more on that. Um, yeah, that's right. It's uh, made with pastel and spatula, which was a yeah quite new technique. Uh, it was created in 1926 in Paris, but um, Samuel Kranowski was not an artist who studied at university, so it was also very experimental. Um, he originally came from Tsarist Russia and went to Paris in 1909 and never studied uh, there. He settled in the avant-garde artist colony La Ruche. Maybe you know that name. It's in English, uh, the honey camp. <laughs> but yeah, he never did an academic study. So he was a young experimental artist um, and made this wonderful nude in 1926 uh, work. And also, as I mentioned, um, yeah, with this new but he didn't as a Jew. 
he stayed in Paris and yeah, this had disastrous consequences because he got caught and also deported in 1942. And I, I can just imagine him, the cowboy of Montparnasse. Uh, you just <laughs> wish that he could yeah. have continued on. Who knows what he would have created? Yes, <laughs> as either. Yeah, he was uh, known as the cowboy from Montparnasse in Paris because of his eccentric, uh, striking dress sense and his cowboy hat. And <laughs> occasionally he was appearing uh, on his horse, riding through Montparnasse. <laughs> uh, we can just... Such a sight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds uh, like a very interesting person. And yeah, <laughs> we would uh, really like uh, had to get to know them. Maybe. <laughs> And he was really standing out. Yes, yes, I agree. One of the other artists you mentioned a little while ago is, uh, I believe, Martha Bernstein. Yes. She is in the exhibition. Uh, and I believe she studied under Matisse. I was curious if you would describe her piece and how you saw, uh, or if you saw Matisse's influences. Yes, of course. She was also a student uh, with Matisse. Uh, she came to Paris in uh, 19, 1999 and then studied um, in his atelier and her nude was uh, finished 1911 it was created directly after her training and yeah it's a really beautiful nude showing a free brushwork and bright colors uh, be a whiteness to the influence to her for this teacher and at the same time the carefully modeled body and the background dissolving into the abstract create a delightful tension that would have been unseemly under a German teacher. So it's a really modern artwork, especially for a female artist. And yeah, it is not no longer the best possible rendering of reality, but the harmony of the colors that create the painterly statement. And she also took it back to Germany, the painting. <laughs> That's maybe an interesting fact. Um, yeah, and the Parisian studies strengthened uh, her success at home, and she became a member of the Berlin Secession in early years. And yeah, that's a great success for a Jewish female artist. But since the seizure of uh, the, the, the National Socialist took power, she had to flee, persecuted as a Jew, and is barely known today in German-speaking area. That's, yeah, a pity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, the the term for painting women in Germany in that era still was derogatory, Malweiber, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, this is a former German expression um, and a mocking term for female artists. Even at the beginning of the 20th century, women were not considered to have any artistic talent or creative gifts. So until the 1930s, they had to overcome great educational barriers and obstacles. And this is what the terms describe. Um, in the conservative German empire, it was considered indecent for women to develop artistic ambitions. And they were allowed to be creative, but in the domestic sphere. 
and they were denied a serious education or, of course, a career. And the social view at that time was that women, uh, that a woman's job was to tend to the household and family. Yeah. And female painters were therefore not taken seriously, often pushed into the applied arts or advised to engage in decorative arts, such as still life. And yeah, for those who wished for a more serious artistic career, there was only one destination around 1900, Paris. Uh, that's what Bernstein did, and she definitely didn't paint on the still life in Paris, <laughs> as we know today, yeah. Are any of the artists that are in the Paris exhibition uh, examples of artists who, when the Nazis took over, had to switch from expressionism into a more conservative painting approach? Uh, not in Paris in, on display, but we have a really interesting artist who's called Adolphe Seher. He's on our second parallel exhibition on display, and that's maybe an example for your question. Yeah, on the beach, is that the yes. painting? Yes. Would you please do describe that, if you would? Yes, uh, of course. Um, Adolf de Herr is yeah forced was forced to switch from his former cubist, extremistish uh, and very colorful style to an uh, harmless conservative naturalism, and this included pictorial subjects such as still lives and also female nudes, uh, as we have here on display. And Adolf de Herr yeah had to do this in order to be able to continue. Uh, his profession and to ensure his survival. Um, so this, this artwork was adapted and there were uh, also many paintings uh, made by him uh, which were confiscated from the National Socialists from public art exhibition in Düsseldorf and yeah, this was the reason for him to switch his style and um, at the Third Reich was um, the Romantic Realism very popular and the artist was forced to do to paint like this and he therefore tuned um, to a color muted naturalism and only painted inoffensive themes and his work on the beach is painted in exactly this type of romantic realism and with classical models uh, the nude paintings of men and particularly women were highly stereotyped as you can see in our work and represent physical perfection as um, yeah the natives uh, imagined for uh, as perfection <laughs> so we can see three larger than live women on a stone beach tall and strong traditionally styled hair contemporary swimsuit the, the artwork works with both unveiling and concealing the body because the painting style is flat parts of the body were barely elaborated. So it's a really stereotype, uh, not erotic uh, depiction of three naked women. Um, and in 1940, the same year it was painted, the work was shown at uh, an exhibition in Berlin. So it was kind of success, even the artist didn't want it. And yeah, this did definitely not correspond to his uh, values and his uh, artistic style because we know how he painted 
um, before the seizure of power. And would you say someone like Mac Cock, who seemed to stick to his style despite the Nazi presence, would you say he's a uh, an example of the opposite reaction? Mm, that's a very difficult question. Macock. Uh, maybe you have to know Macock. Um, yeah, he was an artist who painted just for himself and um, without any uh, publicity. So he maybe could fit uh, to the description of um, inner immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, because he didn't sell any works, he didn't uh, had contact to any of his colleagues. Um, they had it. So the best uh, example here for is that he could exhibit still in 1940, but Mark Cox didn't. And he's really a forgotten artist and a very interesting forgotten artist. He's completely underestimated in the established art world today. Um, and this is also maybe a very interesting information. We own one of his extremely rare large oil paintings because most of them were burned during the nights of the Hamburg bombings. And officially, there were um, much uh, many works um, uh, as that uh, could be saved, but oil paintings are officially uh, destroyed today. And he actually trained as a fresco painter. And in 1920s, he had his first contact with the surrealist art um, because his teacher showed him a French magazine with surrealist paintings. And this experience had a lasting influence on his work. You already see that work. Robert work. And uh, yeah, in early 1930s, he began to create paintings in this uh, style and these paintings kind of anticipated the destructive times to come and also referred to the horrors of the first world war in Europe back. So in this, in this, uh, because in this war, technical advancements lead to new weapons Um, and these weapons, yeah, dehumanized the welfare and it really matched European parties fought each other and for many artists these events caused them to question humanity and created a crisis of meaning and surrealistic art reacted to these questions which also you can see in Mac Cox's work and the piece that's on display now is that woman with pipe yes uh, woman with, uh, with pipe was created in 1930 and um, yeah, it shows a woman in a fantasy uniform with a fantasy hat and a fantasy jacket and a fantasy flag. And um, in her hand, she's holding a pipe. Uh, and she stands in front of a dark background and yeah, a large soap bubble floats above the pipe. So um, yeah, thus rendering the pipe harmless as a kind of a toy. And on the right edge on the picture is a cognac bottle topped by a smashed doll bust. And on the left, the bucket of flowers lies over a machine gun. So the military elements of this picture are 
yeah, misappropriated with fantastic combinations and artistically rendered harmless with a machine gun shooting flowers and a pipe with uh, blows bubbles that's almost childlike. Wishful thinking can be read, yeah, as a caricature of war and uh, also of society. Such a great piece to have in the collection. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I also think this piece is highly personal and the artistic means of dealing with the looming dangers. And not just for the artist, but also for anyone who saw this artwork, still for us today. And yeah, in his heyday, especially in the 1920s and 30s, Koch lived in isolation and anonymity and constantly threatened by the Nazis without collegial exchange or criticism. Yeah, that's what we call uh, in the emigration today. I would also be very interested if you could describe the Hoffner family. You have a piece from three members of that family. <laughs> Every painting has its own uh, story in our collection. And <laughs> the Hafner family is also a typical example of how anti-Semitism for families apart. We have Herbert Hafner and Ilse Nude. Um, they both developed their artistic careers during the 1920s and met each other while studying in Berlin and married in 1927 and then um, they had a son, Thomas. And we also own a painting made by him. And now the three uh, family members are hanging side by side in our new exhibition. <laughs> um, maybe you want me to describe these works? Yes, I would love to have a description of them. And I'm also curious uh, if you saw influences from the parents' paintings in their son's work. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm. First, we have uh, artwork by Herbert, the father. Uh, the exhibited work is called Portrait of Michelino Jungs and was created in 1935. But we unfortunately don't know who's Miss Lydia Jungs, researching on that. <laughs> and um, yeah, one one year before this uh, painting was created, he uh, was awarded the Rome Prize uh, from the Academy of Fine Arts in Paris. The Rome Prize was an important award for artists, which included a scholarship and several years in Rome. And one year after that, this painting was created. And yeah, we see there a young woman with uh, big eyes and a melancholic look, and she stares directly at the viewer. And the fine contours of her face are modeled by soft shading. The colors are dark tones and applied in a glazed manner, which is particularly evident in the translucent background. Colors and forms dissolve into each other, and the brush strokes are clearly visible except for the face area. And with this free brushwork and the partial non-finito, this is a wording called for, yeah, unfinished. This portrait maybe did not correspond to the artistic view of the National Socialists. We had here a very personal portrait in which the artist is not only depict the person, but also provides the character with all its emotions. 
and it is therefore certain that Hefner created this portrait as a yeah, private commissioned work. In 1937, the National Socialists revoked his warm prize. The reason for that was his marriage with uh, Ilse. He was closely associated to a Jew and pressured to divorce his wife. When he refused, he was expelled from the Chamber of Fine Arts and banned from painting. And it is possible that his painting style was for the reason. In order to protect his wife, he also protected his marriage. And in November 43, his atelier and apartment fell victim to bombing raids. So the family had to flee, and after changing apartments, Ilse was arrested. Um, but we also have a painting which was um, made by Ilse, by the mother. It is called Portrait of a Lady in Front of a Wooden Gate. Uh, unfortunately, it's not dated, so we are still researching the identity of the portrait and yeah, searching for when it could uh, be finished because this was a really difficult time for her and her family. And unlike her husband, Herbert, Ilse painted her sitter with black contours, as well as with simplified forms and few shades of color. And the sitter looks away from the viewer. This painting is more about pictorial construction. The formal interplay of wooden gate in the background and reduced geometricized forms in the foreground. Yeah, we don't know um, what happened to the painting after that when she was uh, arrested. But um, yeah, in this camp, in this labor camp where she was arrested, she had to do forced labor and she attracted the attention of the guards because she often drew figures in the sand. Um, as a result, she had the permission to paint in the camp. Before um, Ilse was arrested, their son Thomas was brought to his uncle to Switzerland in 1938 in order to protect him from persecution. Uh, using his connections, uh, Herbert's connections, he was able to bring Thomas to British Ceylon, uh, which is now Sri Lanka. And Thomas attended a boarding school there until the end of the war. His painting is called... Um, Fantasy landscape with mask, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows a steep imaginary architecture in front of a dark cliff wall, um, reminiscent of um, yeah, Sri Lankan maybe temples, we don't know. And the facades of the towers look like distorted masks with open eyes and mouths. And in the foreground, this motif implemented again a bright mask with the face of a child uh, with hollow eyes and open mouth lies at the lower edge on the picture. Um, but we don't consider that uh, yeah, he uh, was influenced in his painting style by his parents because this painting is uh, yeah, clearly um, reflects his separation from the family in, at a young age and his trauma. Um, and um, yeah, this is why he um, made many uh, fantastic landscapes in this style, um, which were some nightmarish and so realistic and yeah, 
you can also see what um, were his circumstances during his exile in uh, foraging uh, land country. So, yeah, after the war, he had the opportunity to return, but um, yeah, he was in Düsseldorf and then um, he did suicide. When Ilsa was in the camp and you said that she was allowed to paint, I was just curious if we knew any more details about that. Yeah, uh, there in the camp she created simple ink drawings, um, yeah, which depicted her daily life in the camp. Uh, but I'm not sure if uh, they survived, unfortunately. Um, yeah, we also have none of this in our collection. What have the responses been of visitors to these two exhibitions? <laughs> our visitor feedback is, um, yeah, consistently positive <laughs> um, about our exhibition, but also especially about our aim in general, about our museum, yeah, which is that we are conducting pioneering research on a large part of the artists of the last generation and we also are the only museum in the German-speaking area that deals exclusively with these artists and topics. And that's why we have a large number of interested visitors who come back again and again and that's, yeah. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the museum, art of the lost generation. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast, email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com, or leave a voice message at 1-929-260-4942. And the podcast Patreon page has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash warfare of art and law. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.